This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey everybody, welcome back to Ospol Snackpod, the podcast where two of Australia's foremost political nobodies serve you up bite-sized chunks of Australian news and politics with a healthy side-serving of crispy memes. We are also the official podcast of the Ospol Posting Facebook group. My name is Zach Snack, and with me as always is friend, confidant, and member of my inner sanctum since the good old days. It's me, it's noon. Hi everybody. Uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in. It's uh, really nice that you've decided to spend approximately an hour hanging out with us. It, it's really an honor for us that, that all of you listen. So thank you so much. Yeah, we genuinely appreciate it. I appreciate you too, Noon. Just wanted to let Thanks. you know that. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, we want to give a couple of shout outs at the top of the show. First up to Joe, who came on the show last week and did an absolutely amazing job. And um, we received yeah. several requests to make her a permanent guest host. But she's busy hosting her own podcast, Chronically Fully Sick, which you should go and check out, mm-hmm. and is uh, fantastic. Uh, Joe also jo- joined up as a patron, which is extremely sweet. So thank you very much, Joe. Um, I also wanted to shout out another new patron, James. Welcome to the family. You thank are going you. to get one bonus episode per month over on the Patreon for signing up, uh, which you, listener, can also do. I also wanted to shout out Amina, who upped their patronage to 10 bucks, which means they're going to get a very cool little snack pod, limited edition, toasty enamel pin in that that's in the mail. It's on its way. And you can get one of those too if you sign up for 10 bucks a month. Um, Amina submitted a potluck to us last week, which is really good, which we played it was, yeah. about um, the fuckery going on at James Cook University with the administration at the moment. And uh, I wanted to apologize for mispronouncing their name when I introduced that segment. Um, that sucks. They, you know, put in a whole bunch of effort into recording and sending in that thing, and uh, they did a really good job. And then for me to just not do the absolute minimum and being like, hey, how's your name pronounced before I say it on this show? Uh, that's shitty. So I, I apologize for that, and uh, that's something I'm going to do better on in future. Uh, yeah, we will try and get our guests to tell us how to say their names in future. Yeah, but uh, thank you for your ongoing support, both you know, uh, out on the socials and in private, and also on the Patreon. We really appreciate it. It's lovely. Speaking, Speaking of, of the Patreon, Patreon, yeah, that's right. So we've just uh, put on some new goals for our Patreon. Sorry, we don't normally talk about this. If this is the first episode that you've tuned into for a while, we normally don't spend so long on Patreon, but we've just had a really like lovely week of people supporting us, and we wanted to yeah spend a minute on it. But so we, we have goals. If we reach 75 patrons, which is just, uh, it's less than 10 before we get there, then I'm going to get a copy of Stuart Roberts' book that uh, Joe revealed to us exists last week about <laughs> about Jesus. Uh, and I'm going to read it, and we're going to do a bonus episode, possibly two, uh, because it's probably quite a long book, and I'm going to want to meanderingly tell stories about the Bible. Um, so, yeah, we'll do at least one bonus episode on that book if we get to 75 patrons. So hop on over and, and let us reach there. And if we get to 100, Zach has finally said that he will actually do the full-length track remix version of the Ospol Snackpod theme song that people have been bugging us about since literally day one. So I'm looking forward to that. 
probably you are too, listeners. So hop over onto Patreon. You shouldn't us. be. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think work it's going to be best a banger. in three second segments as as a uh-huh. music as a composer. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you, what you're basically asking me for is uh, 50 of what I'm actually good at. So yeah, <laughs> 50 well, times the, my my comfortable length. I'm hyped for that. Uh, when we used to live together, I would often go into Zach's room and just lie on his bed, and he would do what we called make raves, which was just play drums on his electric drum kit that could like change the sound effect on each drum. So it was like it was just like practicing drums. But from my point of view, it was like going to like a sick rave uh, for <laughs> 45 minutes in his bedroom. So very yeah, generous. Uh, very I disagree generous. about the three seconds, but we shall see. We will. All right. All right. That is more than enough snack pod bullshit. Noon, it's time to get into our entree. Uh, what have you brought for us to snack on this week? Well, one of my favorite foods, a big old lump of coal. Uh, and that's it's coal. Don't be afraid. It, it's coal. Um, um, it, um, no. it won't hurt you. <laughs> it Even might. if you ingest um, it. <laughs> so, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Premier of Queensland, has approved the Olive Downs Coking Coal Project, which is... Uh, set to be Queensland's third largest coal mine run by a company called Pembroke Resources. And it's going to be open for 80 fucking years, which means that probably like half the people listening to this show will be dead before the coal mine dies. (laughs) Uh, Like, not that we have a very old listenership. 80 years is a really long time. Um, So this is obviously fucking terrible. Uh, One thing that makes it slightly less bad, though not much less bad, is that, uh, as it says in the name, this is a coking coal mine, not a thermal coal mine. So thermal coal is all for burning in power stations. That's what the Mm. Adani Carmichael is going to be. That's what all of the coal mines in Victoria are. They dig it up and they put it in the, the power plant and they burn it. Coking coal, which is also called metallurgical coal, aka met coal, is... Basically just a carbon source to turn iron into steel, because steel is carbon and iron together. Mm. And so they need a big lump of carbon that they can mix with the steel, uh, the iron. And so coal is basically just a very dense lump of carbon. So it's really useful for that. And so in theory, we could have a zero emissions use of this coal where all of the coal is just turned into carbon. But in practice, what actually happens is that it's used as a source of energy. So it's like burned to use as fuel and then so part of it is burnt as fuel and part of it is turned into carbon to become steel um and i'm pretty sure i get into metallurgical coal kind of deeply in our climate cookies episode which i'll pop a link into the show notes but there are alternative options for carbon sources and energy sources for making steel so for example one of the things we need to do to stop the fiery climate hellscape that we're rapidly approaching is carbon drawdown, which is basically like growing vast fields of hemp or of bamboo and then pyrolyzing it, which turns that into charcoal. And then charcoal is a really good carbon feedstock that could replace coal. Uh, it is less dense, so you need much more of it, but like we would... Vast fields. Vast fields. So, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> vast Big fields. Of fields. Um, Sounds horrible. It sounds I, horrible. It sounds, sounds, like, sounds like an eyesore to me. Imagine driving into Canberra on your way to Parliament House and having to drive through massive fields of hemp and bamboo. I mean, it's just ugly. You go into work feeling just gross. Icky. You know? yeah, yeah, that's right. Icky. Icky. I think that's the word for it. Uh, 
This week, Palaszczuk also signed a deal saying that Adani don't have to pay anything for their coal mine until they feel like it. And I wish that that was an exaggeration or like uh, whatever, so that I could then give you the actual details that make that joke sound funny. But it's not a joke. That is literally the agreement is just like you don't have to pay royalties until you want to. So that is deeply cooked. Uh, There's another... Very mild, deeply cooked... Well, not mild, but brief cooked thing that you wanted to mention while we're on Palaszczuk, Zach? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I had this story in the notes, and then we have too many stories, so I cut this one. But um, Queensland has just... Or the Queensland government, and Palaszczuk in particular, has just announced that they are going to be getting over 2,000 new cops for Queensland. Um, <laughs> while we were talking about fuck things that the Victorian Labor government is doing, I thought we might just sprinkle that on top. On yep. you know on on top of the locking in even more carbon emissions. You mean uh, Queensland government? But yes. Qu- did I say what did I say? You said Victorian, but yeah. Oh god. They both love That's... coal and cops, so it's a completely reasonable mistake to make. But... Uh, that, look, thank you for covering for me. <laughs> I meant to say Queensland. Yeah. Anyway. What the fuck's going on up there? I mean, the same thing that's going on everywhere else in the country, I guess, as you say. Yep. Yep. Um, Alright, uh, should we move on? Yeah. Hey, man, I got some more beers. Oh, uh, I don't know if I can drink anymore. I'm feeling kind of sick. No, come on, we're having another round of Coronas. That's right, yet more Corona stuff, and this is probably why I accidentally swapped the Victorian and Queensland governments in my head, because uh, I've been reading about the Victorian government, as I do each week, and... Uh, just wanted to give a quick update, basically, on where the Victorian government states the Victorian government's inquiry into the hotel quarantine program is at. So that cool. inquiry has been ongoing for a few weeks, and it's just concluded. Um, as we've talked about on the show, and as I'm sure everybody is very aware, the program has been plagued with problems, and it was infected security guards um, from the hotel quarantine program that kicked off Victoria's second wave. Um, I was reading this week that lawyers assisting the inquiry have blamed the hotel quarantine failures failures for 768 deaths and yeah. 18,000 infections. They found that the the hotel quarantine outbreaks were responsible for 99% of the second wave, which Holy is shit. yeah, it, <laughs> pretty pretty wild stuff. So the big development last week, which we did touch on but didn't get into, um, was that after days of uh, various officials refusing to take responsibility for the mm. program in general, but specifically everybody sort of passing the buck when it comes to whose decision was it to hire private security for hotel yep. quarantine. Uh, you know, n- nobody, no, everybody's like, no, nah, it wasn't my job. I didn't know about it. Eventually what happened was Daniel Andrews basically placed the blame on uh, the health minister, Jenny McCarcos. Uh, and she basically resigned straight away. Um, but she released a statement essentially being like, it wasn't actually me. I've just been thrown under the bus. Um, yeah. A, a quote here from the statement. But in light of the Premier's statement to the Board of Inquiry and the fact that there are elements in it that I strongly disagree with, I believe that I cannot continue to serve in this cabinet. So that's not, oh, yeah, I'm responsible for this fuck up. And mm. so I'm going to resign as a consequence of that. It's like, I can't work with a boss who has told everyone that this awful thing was my fault. We talked a little bit off air about the issue of ministerial responsibility. Yeah. And um, 
Uh, I don't think we really need to get into it. I'm not sure it's super exciting or relevant here, but one of the principles of the Constitution of Westminster Parliaments is that every decision made by a government has a minister whose responsibility that is. Yeah. And we see all the time that people avoid that ministerial responsibility and, like, you know, basically any conservative government in the last decade has refused to let any of their members take any responsibility for any fuck-ups. But it's a really crucial part of how Westminster parliaments are meant to operate. Um, so even if it wasn't actually Mikakos's decision, she was probably still the responsible minister and should still take responsibility for it. Uh, that said, like, I mean, it sucks for her if she didn't do anything wrong and Daniel Andrews was like, we're going to do this, and now he's being like, it's your fault. So, like, I'm not saying it was her bad. I'm just saying, like, this is kind of what's meant to happen even if it wasn't her bad because it's her job <laughs> yeah, to take the fall point, for it or something. Point definitely you know, taken. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's how things at least seem to work sometimes in the Labour Party, but definitely yes. never in the coalition. Exactly, um, yeah. And, in fact, if you fuck up, you... Get Normally your entire get party coming behind you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, this week, the inquiry, the, the hotel quarantine inquiry was investigating nine cases of workers uh, at the hotel quarantine getting infected. But this is under the new overhauled regime. Mm. Um, so there was the initial hotel quarantine setup, which resulted in the second wave. And then when that happened, they were like, fuck, fuck, fuck. We need to overhaul this. Uh, the new system was being run by the Alfred Hospital. But they outsourced themselves a whole bunch of stuff to Spotless, which is like a logistics company who have been getting a shitload of government contracts from the Victorian government throughout the corona crisis to do, you know, these people that you see on the street wiping down telephone Toads. poles and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Spotless. That's all Spotless. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. I was wondering uh, who, who they were. I see them all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, so they've, even under this new regime, the cleaning responsibilities have been outsourced to subcontracted workers again, uh, yep. which is, you know, th these this subcontracting is what caused the initial outbreak in the first place. And now it's uh, come out uh, as part of the inquiry that two of those cleaners worked at hotel quarantine while they were infectious. So now people, there's like a whole new round of recriminations going on and everybody being like, oh, how did this happen again? This is so irresponsible. And... Yep. Seems like it is kind of irresponsible. I mean, I don't have an opinion on whose like individual fault it is. Sure, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's you no know, way that you or I could know that. Right. The the story is a fucking mess, and I don't believe anything that anyone is saying. Really, like when it comes to the politicians. I mean, and they're all completely refusing to take responsibility. All yeah. the ministers and the Department of Health and Human Services, etc. But we did discuss that the Victorian government's outsourcing of contact tracing was a major contributor to the second wave. And now it seems like the outsourcing of the security for the hotel quarantine was... Uh, we know that it was a crucial part of why the program failed. Mm. Um, but it kind of, like, begs the question, I think, what's the alternative? Like, who else does the government have to mobilize in a situation like this, right? Yeah. The, the, the other alternatives are basically cops, which is, uh, as of mid this week, uh, they are now doing the security at the hotel quarantine. But we don't like cops... Mm -hmm. uh, the other option is the Australian Defence Force. And there's been a bit of back and forth about whether or not the ADF was offered to the Andrews yeah, government yeah. as extra help or not. Um, but, like, that's basically it. And neither of those organisations 
I would trust with a public health response at all. Like we, you don't want them being the point of contact for the community at a vulnerable time like this, because we'll get into it later in the, uh, in our next segment, but you get absolutely fucked results. So I, I don't know. I mean, if ultimately what I've taken from this as the inquiry sort of wraps up is that more broadly, it's just an indictment of privatization, but also yeah, a political and economic system that can't conceive of a crisis response beyond hiring out private companies mm. and, in fact, doesn't have any other kind of infrastructure in place to well, turn yeah, to I mean, beyond it, that. Basically, since you know the 80s and Thatcherism or whatever, Reaganism, um, all government services have been completely gutted and replaced with outside contracts and yep. normally for much more than it would have cost to keep them in-house. Um, but yep. it's like and in a different part of the budget. Yeah, and doing a worse job. And, and doing a worse job and having and, less like institutional knowledge so that if you then hire someone else, it doesn't continue. And like, there's so many reasons it's a bad idea. But it, Exactly. And uh, less accountability. Not that we're seeing a huge amount of accountability from the sure, government yeah, yeah. on this right yeah. now. But... Um, but yeah, I mean, and the the other major result of this, and the other major through line of these hotel quarantine stories, is the way that this subcontracting puts vulnerable, casualized workers on the on the front lines yeah. of this crisis. And those yeah. are the people that we're talking about when we're saying, you know, that private security guards or uh, spotless cleaning contractors are getting mm. the virus. We're talking about people in extremely unstable employment, like. You know, these these are people who are looking for work in the middle of a pandemic. Spotless puts out an ad and gets hundreds and hundreds of responses within the first couple hours of mm. putting an ad up for hotel quarantine cleaning person. Um, so, I mean, that's another important through line. But, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what I'd suggest as a solution to all this, but it's clear that we need access to a much stronger public health response in situations yeah. like this. Yeah. And we know, we, you know, we discussed when we talked about the uh, Victorian contact tracing failures that the that this state's public health response team was drastically underfunded. And so that's why they had to outsource all this stuff. So, I mean, I guess partially you could talk about it as a... Uh, as a funding thing, but, you know, that's maybe possibly mm. a bit of a red herring as well. Um, yeah. But, the, you know, I just it's clear that we need uh, some kind of publicly run public health body that we can turn to in times like this that just kind of doesn't exist at the moment. Yeah. Um, cool. So the last thing I want to mention before we get on, move on from uh, this is from Corona's is the... Uh, is that Queensland is saying that they're going to open the border to New South Wales at the beginning of November if they get four weeks of no community transmission, which is um, just nice to see things moving in the right direction generally yeah. and numbers being down across the country. Very cool. Uh, cool. Now we've got a little... Fashy Australia. Yeah, so this is also corona-related. Um, we, uh, As we mentioned last week, uh, Melbourne is increasing the fines for breach of corona restrictions up to $5,000. Um, up until now, they've basically been for $1,652. There's, like, different... Depending on what you breach or whatever is different fines, but, like, that's the, that's the usual amount, so it's, like, three times bigger now. But there's been some stats that have come out just in the last few days about the fines issued so far, and... Um, they're pretty fucked, so I wanted to run through them kind of quickly. So, 48% of fines were issued to people under the age of 24, which that was the is stat just that wild. That really shocked me. The other stats are 
completely fucked. Still but horrifying. Not, not surprising. Exactly. Yes. But yes. that one is... 48% of fines. Pretty cooked. Okay. So, of more than 6,000 recorded breaches, there were just 67 warning notices issued. That is 1% of people received a warning instead of or before a fine. Uh, additionally, only six businesses were issued with fines. The rest were all for people. Mm. Which is fucked because we know, for example, that several abattoirs have, uh, like, been irresponsible with their PPE and probably have breached corona restrictions. And, like, I'm sure there's a bunch of others, but nope, it's only individuals that are getting fined. No, that's it. And we know that, like, the government has refused, basically, to crack down on companies that are forcing workers to work when there's been a known case at, uh, you know, like, stocking centres, for example, for, like, Woolworths Mm. and Coles. And so the workers have to take matters into their own hands and refuse to go out on the floor. Um, And... Yeah, meanwhile, the government's like, oh, yeah, no, the the whole fault of this outbreak is individual people just choosing to go These for a These 18-year-olds. Yeah. yeah. So, just to be clear, so that's 1% of people got a warning and 0.1% of fines went to businesses, which is ridiculous. Okay, but here we get into the even fascia stuff. So, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people made up 4.7% of the fines, despite making up just 0.8% of the Victorian population. That's a five times over-representation, which is not the most fucked and racist thing. People who were born in South Sudan and Sudan made up 5% of fines, that's slightly more than Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, but make up only 0.14% of the population, so that's a 35 times over-representation. So, basically, what these numbers tell us is, cops are going out looking for young black kids who are out of their homes or, like, not wearing masks properly, they drop a $1,600 fine on them with no warning, no attempt to make them go home, they don't give them a mask, they targeting young black kids for life-destroying fines, and they aren't giving them any other option. Um, and before we finish this up, I wanted to read out a quote from a Guardian article about this. So Ashley Newenham from Springvale Monash Legal Centre said that people from migrant backgrounds who were fined included a pair of Tamil refugees who were sleeping rough and were fined when they ran into others when out in their walk, with police allegedly assuming that a group of four had gone out together in breach of the rules. They couldn't explain that they, were, that they weren't all from the same household, in fact, and that they weren't out together. They just saw each other and stopped and said hi, and then all four of them got the fine, she said. The language barrier prevented them from being able to explain, and also they're terrified of police. <sighs> yeah, it's... This was so homeless dark. people who were told that they were part of the same household as other people, and were fined for being out of their home that they don't have. Like, early on, there was all of this stuff like, oh, we're going to look after homeless people, we're going to make sure that blah, blah, blah. And, like, nope. No, we are looking after them by finding them so they don't That's do the true. wrong thing again, Noon, and by, don't put themselves in harm's way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that we also will do nothing about. Yes. This relates back to what we were talking about in the last segment in the sense that the government has no other infrastructure to turn to in a situation like this. They can only use a body set up specifically in order to wield violence and oppress people. Like, that is yep. literally their job. And if you send them out <laughs> to, in to health, help people's health, what the fuck do you think is going to happen? Yeah. yeah, they, yeah. they don't have another mode. Cops yeah. do one thing. <sighs> Pretty dark. Yeah. Pretty awful stuff. Well, I think it's time for some tonal whiplash because it's. I've got a positivity corner. Positivity Corner 
And this is one that I had to wrestle with Zach about. Uh, long-term listeners of the show may be aware we have a very strict no... Oh, only Ozpol. I have a very Zach strict, has a very strict rule. Ozpol yes. only policy on this podcast. Part of the reason why I started this podcast is because I realized that I was watching, listening, reading, and absorbing far more American news than I do Australian news. And I was like, wait a minute, there's actually something kind of cooked about that. Uh, when I went to try and find fun Australian politics podcasts, realized, hey, there aren't that many of them. Maybe I should do one. Um, hmm. That was obviously a terrible idea, and I apologize. But um, part of the <laughs> that since that's part of the reason why I started the show, I've been tried to be quite strict with noon. Adamant about it. It's Ozpol and, only. Yeah, but look, this week there was a big event, a huge event, something that I think probably most of our listeners already know about and can guess what this mysterious non-Ozpol positivity corner is. That's right. It's the thing that everyone's been talking about nonstop for the last few days. Oh my god, stop laying it on, bro. <laughs> okay. We have fucking jetpacks, people. The future has arrived. Jetpacks exist. Grab- <laughs> Did you like people that lead-up, listeners? Get, we're going to get angry responses about this. We I should call this episode the hour-long Donald Trump has coronavirus spectacular <laughs> special. No, yeah. we have jetpacks. No one gives a fuck about the president... Jetpacks, Gravity Industries, United Kingdom company, they created this jet suit and did a successful test run. And it was designed specifically to let paramedics cross difficult terrain in like search and rescue situations. Mm. Um, and they did this test run, which is, you can find a video. Um, and this guy, they were like uh, doing a, a trial in this like really rocky, hilly area where apparently a lot of people get lost and then die. Um, and he could reach the target in 90 seconds instead of the nearly half an hour it would have taken on foot uh, for, like, a normal paramedic team to get there. And yeah, it's Because he like, flew there fucking... on a fucking jetpack. Because he flew there on a fucking jetpack. It's so cool. And the video, you just watch it, and he's just, like, just, like, flying around in a jetpack. Yeah, it's, it's not it's one just of these like... bullshit, like, water jetpacks that you see around. It's not it's like no... those hover skis or whatever. No. It's... It's no bullshit, it's an actual real functional fucking fucking James Bond shit. I mean, it actually functions better. I watched the James Bond movie where he wears a jetpack just recently. Yeah, right. And his jetpack looks way worse than this one. Yeah. Yeah. Granted, it was Uh, in like 1964, but whatever. Still, yeah. Uh, Look, as someone who can't drive, I'm very excited for this technology to become more widely available. You will legally uh, not be able to do it. Yeah, probably Sorry. not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, it burns currently jet fuel or diesel, so currently a very carbon-intense and extractive industry-intense technology, but still extremely cool. Hey, it uh, wouldn't be a positivity corner if there wasn't also something depressing in it. A negative bit, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's, it's pretty fucking cool, so that's why yeah. I wanted to breach Zach's Ozpol-only rule for this vital international breaking news story. Yeah, and look, while we're breaking the rules... Just want to go on record and officially say that it is definitely very funny that Donald Trump has corona. That's yes. hilarious. Okay, so shall we move on to our First Nations story, Zach? Yeah, for sure. So this week uh, we're going to talk about the Torres Strait Eight, which is a group of eight Torres Strait Islanders who last year brought a human rights complaint against the Australian government. Um, that was a complaint taken to the United Nations. The claim says that by failing to address climate change, the Australian government has breached their fundamental rights to culture and life. Uh, So completely unsurprisingly, the Australian government tried to have the complaint dismissed. And this week, the Torres Strait 8 have made their final legal submission to the United Nations. 
so uh, I read about this in an ABC article, and they interviewed uh, a man named Yessi Mosby, who's one of the uh, Torres Strait Eight, and he said, quote, erosion is eating away our island. Our way of living, our culture, our tradition has been violated. And uh, one of the direct effects that the article mentions is that unusually massive tides swept away a graveyard uh, where Mosby's great-great-grandmother was buried. Um, and years later, he's still searching for her remains. Um, and oh, he says shit. that he's very worried that more sacred cultural sites could be washed away yeah, by rising seas. So we're really talking about people on the very front line of uh, the devastating effects of climate change. So the Australian government, uh, you know, again, very predictably running the it's not our fault, it's a global problem line, uh-huh. which is just extremely fucking tired uh, and disingenuous shit, as we mm-hmm. have described many times. Um, but aside from that argument being bullshit, like this, the the effects of the of climate change on the Torres Strait Islands yeah, yeah. is not a global issue. It's a fucking local issue. It's an issue like under an activist- your direct jurisdiction. I know this is an activist slogan, not a government slogan, but there's that thing of, like, think global, act local, and, like, we could be acting locally in the Torres Strait Islands to prevent this happening. In, like, all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Uh, No, well, the Australian government likes to think either local or global, depending on which attitude enables them to shirk their responsibilities. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, But, you know, in this particular case, aside from the broader, like, stuff that they could do to not continued to gleefully inflict irreversible damage to the planet in order to, you know, for financial gain. Mm. They could also just very immediately do stuff to make the situation less bad in the Torres Strait. Like build seawalls, for example, or like... Exactly. Yeah. So, in fact, there's there's a petition calling on the Prime Minister, and this is a a quote um, from the petition. They say, we call on the Prime Minister to commit the Australian government to doing everything it can to support the people of the Torres Strait with the resources they need to protect their island homes from climate change and to mobilise Australia to pass laws to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in line with its commitments to a 1.5 degree target under the Paris Agreement. Um, So I believe that they're asking for $20 million in funding for emergency measures to protect the islands from sea level rises. Mm -hmm. So that would obviously include seawalls and um, a bunch of other approaches as well. Yep. You can sign that petition at ourislandsourhome.com.au. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and yeah, I mean, we'll, uh, keep an eye on that story, uh, as it develops and see, you know, it could, it could basically be a landmark legal, legal case Absolutely, um, that yeah. could set a, a global precedent for people be actually being able to hold their governments to account for what they are responsible for doing to the literal land that they live on. Yep. Cool. So now we're going to move on to our potluck segment. Potluck where you bring the snacks. And we've actually got two potlucks. Uh, this is a brief one from a friend, confidant, member of our inner sanctum, uh, snack pod superfan, Leah. Um, about and host and, of Loud Angry Not Sorry. And host of Lang- Loud Angry Not Sorry. Yeah, sorry, I really need to spook that more. It's real good. I was just listening to the uh, most recent episode. Yeah, very interesting. Um, uh, and it's about next week's budget. I think last week I said that the budget was this week. It's actually next week on Tuesday. And so here's just a little... Uh, taste test from Leah so you can get an idea about what it's going to be like. 
I'm really, really concerned about this next budget. Not just because Frydenberg pretty much just rubs one out whenever he hears Thatcher's name, but the projections, especially from the Australian Institute, are kind of terrifying. Also, what we would we know and expect from the Liberal Party. But essentially, we're looking at mass, massive, massive disparity between working classes, and we're looking at women being even more disadvantaged by this budget. Which, when you when you put that on top of the sexual discrimination that we receive at work, the the gig economy, the carers' roles being disrespected, infection outbreaks in healthcare, like women are fucked. Like we are absolutely fucked, and that's not even taking into account gender diversity, um, people of color, and other other marginalized groups, migrant workers. Like we're fucked. Yeah, I mean, that pretty much sums it up. And, you know, we've talked before on the show about how the government's response to coronavirus has been extraordinarily gendered and has just basically been trying to get, you know, women back in the kitchen or whatever. And it, it's super fucked. That's like such an immediate political instinct for the entire conservative side of politics in this country. Mm. And I think, yeah, being afraid and concerned about every budget is merely extremely sensible sensible very sensible stuff um thank you leah and if you want to hear more of uh leah's analysis definitely go check out loud angry and not sorry i was just gonna say we have another potluck that's a bit longer that we're gonna play at the end of the show so um stay hyped for that one that that's from last week i really enjoyed that one so you know there's another potluck coming up double potlucks um but before then let's get stuck into shit post of the week yeah so I, uh, as long-term listeners slash members of the Ozpol Shitposting Facebook group may know, uh, one of the main ways that I contribute to the group, aside from being the admin, is taking blurry photographs with my shitty phone camera of the age and then posting those photos in the group. Um, and I posted a photo of uh, a a lunar cartoon from earlier this week. It It was on Monday, September 28th. And, um... I'm not sure we've talked about Lunig much on the show, Zach. No. I think we've managed why? to avoid it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I used to like him a lot when I was a small child. And as I've That's gotten appropriate. older. It is appropriate. As I've gotten older, he has gotten worse and I've become more critical. Yeah, we used to have his fucking calendar, calendar on every, the fridge. Yeah. Yeah, same. yeah. Yeah. Um, that would get released in the Sydney Morning Herald. But yeah, he has, he's definitely gotten worse with age. Yes. But I think also um, we have probably got a lot less time for uh, facile bullshit than we did when we were yes. 10. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, that okay, guy's well, got a little duck on his head. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. That's mature. It's, it's kind of sad, but also there's a duck. Yeah. All right. Well, this one, do I need to read the whole thing? I'm not sure. It's quite a lot of text. <sighs> Look, I guess I, I, guess I let's will. Let's do it. You right. be the okay. So it's set in a in a. It's called somewhere, somewhere in, in a psychoanalyst psycho room. room. Yeah. And uh, noon. Why don't you be the patient and I'll be the doctor? Uh, that's appropriate. Okay. Patient <laughs> said the patient is lying on a couch. He's clearly a Freudian analyst. He says, "I'm having a fantasy <laughs> relationship with a man named Dan. He is all powerful and autocratic. I am at his mercy. He controls and dominates me. There is the great thrill and excitement of bondage and submission." I am his captive. I love and obey him. I worship him. He protects me like I'm his sweet little baby. Stockholm Syndrome has uh, Hold on, designed- hold on. You're not saying this. This is the therapist I- thinking this to himself. Yep. Stockholm Syndrome has been defined as a condition in which hostages develop a psychological alliance with their captors during captivity. Emotional bonds may be formed between captors and captives. And then it goes back to the, uh, the... Therapand? What a... a-, a- 
Aniland, whatever, the, 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 the patient. Uh, those who disobey him are, are thrown to the ground and handcuffed by Dan's men in black. To see this gives me amazing pleasure. The pleasure is underlined. Um, the doctor says, so what's the problem? No problem. I'm in paradise. I'm just a little worried he will soften and ease the restrictions. Boo! This is one of shit the worst comic, fucking bad jobs. Pieces just of awful. shit commentary that it, it could be fit into this small square. He's just so fucking full of shit. Uh, I, like, I swear to God. Like, A, he's just like clearly leapt on board with the dictator Dan bullshit, which is like... Nothing like this is what Dan is doing. He is mildly fashy. But, like, it's not bondage and submission and love and obey and worship and protecting his sweet little baby. He's just, like, a kind of shit dude. The other thing is, Stockholm Syndrome is basically nonsense. Uh, is, mm-hmm. it, it has never been included in the DSM, which is, uh, you, you listeners may know as the book of official types of crazy you can be, uh, and it's never been included in there because there's basically no evidence it exists. Um, yeah, so it was invented by media when some hostages uh, wouldn't testify in court against their captives in, in Stockholm, Sweden. But, uh, like, the cops were real shit to them, so they were kind of like, well, we don't really want to help yeah, they the cops sided in this with, situation. Like, the bank robbers, because, yeah, they, they felt that the cops had absolutely no concern for their welfare at all. That's right. They thought that the cops were, like, more likely to kill them than the hostages, than the hostage takers were. Yeah. Yeah. But also, one of the bank robbers was extremely charming. And, right. Um, I would highly recommend going and listen to the episode of the podcast Criminal, which is hosted by Phoebe Judge, which is an extremely good uh, kind of take on a true crime podcast that is not your average true crime podcast, but there's an episode where she interviews the bank robber and one of the hostages cool. from the situation that gave rise to the term Stockholm Syndrome. That's awesome. I'll uh, check that out. It's a really interesting listen. Sounds yeah. great. Great podcast in general. But this has all been a lead-up. This was not the shitpost of the week. This was a big fuck you loony. But the shitpost of the week is being awarded to Morgan Little, who I'm not sure has won it before, but congratulations, Morgan. Uh, he's a friend, confidant, and member of my inner sanctum. Um, and yours as well recently, actually, Zach. You've been, you've been catching up with Morgan, haven't you? Uh, yeah, we did an Auslan class together. This is the, uh, this is the remix that they, uh, they put together. And so it's the same images, but with new text. And so the patient says, I keep having these fantastic ideas for new comic strips. The world has gone to shit, you see. It used to be good, like when I was young and relevant. And if I make some low-effort snarky comments about changes that scare me... And the psychologist is just imagining a thought bubble with the uh, Principal Skinner meme of him being like, Am I so out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong. Uh, that's what he's thinking about instead of thinking about Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. yeah. And the, the patient goes on, then maybe I can make things better. <laughs> the doctor says, have you considered that you could be, in every way, wrong? <laughs> Hilarious. And uh, thanks for doing the job of uh, an- analyzing that comic for us, yeah, Morgan, yeah. so that we don't have to. Uh, and congratulations on your excellent shit posting. It's, it's some good shit. Yeah, we need more... Um surprisingly high effort remixes of Lunig cartoons so good yeah. good job all right zach it's time for our main course i think what are we what are we having my god are we coming in almost on time holy kind shit of. yeah nice that's what you get um, cutting stories halfway through the show <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, if there's any big stories that uh, you're like, hey, how come they didn't talk about this this week? Well, we broke we were going for it to, and we, but we, and ran we out cut of time. it. Yeah. Um, Spent too long talking okay. about jetpacks. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to leave lots of space at the end here for me to ramble, uh, hopefully somewhat coherently, about the Maritime Union of Australia. So I want to acknowledge that my notes for this section are a bit of a fucking mess and I'm sort of ducking in and out of current events and into historical context here and there. But I think this is, uh, I think the historical context is super necessary. So hopefully I can make it all make sense. This is also Um, something I know very little about. So I'm very excited to hear everything you've got to say. So. Yeah, and there's something that, that like I've wanted for a long time to do a, uh, a much deeper dive into the history of labor organizing in Australia, yeah. which is this is maybe kind of a precursor to that. But okay, let's dive in. So the Maritime Union of Australia has been on strike, kind of. They've been doing some industrial action over the past couple of weeks. So the Maritime Union of Australia, or MUA, is these days a division of the CFMMEU. So they're the extra M that was recently added, so it's now the Construction, Forestry, Maritime, Mining, and Energy Union. Um, that was a merger, so right? The, so they were separate unions and then have now... Exactly. So the, so the MUA have kept... The, the Maritime Union of Australia... So the MUA have kept their name, but they're now the Maritime Division of the CFM. I see, I see. Cool. Yeah. Um, the MUA is itself the result of several amalgamations yeah. over over history, uh, as is the CFMMEU, as you can tell by the ridiculous as are nearly all long acronym. unions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but the MUA has historically been one of Australia's most powerful and active unions. Hmm. I mean, Wharfies unions have always been one of the staunchest um, across the world. Yeah, well, I talked about um, them a bunch in our bonus episode when we talked about historical feminists in so-called Australia, uh, the sick Aboriginal communist badass activist who I discussed was uh, got her start in the Wharfies union. Um, and totally. That was a really big part of her organising, so yeah. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I mean, they, they've got a long history of being supportive of other social causes beyond mm. their own, uh, you know, uh, workplace stuff. Uh, they striked in support of green bands in the 1970s, cool. um, which was one of the coolest things that the union movement in Australia has ever done. Yep. And uh, just recently, they uh, striked in, in support of uh, school strike for climate, which is also cool. Yep. Uh, striked or struck? struck I'm going with striked. Did you say striked or struck? It's definitely struck, but it doesn't matter. It's like All people right. being like, I I shotted that vodka. No. Or you you shoot a shot, but no one says that. It's fine. <laughs> I shot a shot. Yeah, okay. Um, but so the MUA has been trying to negotiate a pay rise for dock workers um, since early this year. So they've been negotiating with three different stevedore companies, which is just what you call companies that load and unload ships. Um, but the important company that you need to know about is called Patrick, and they are the ones who have caused all of the drama this week. Um, I forget what their full name is. It's like Patrick Logistics or something, but sure. I'm just going to call them Patrick for this story. So initially, the MUA were asking for a 6% pay rises over the next four years. But once the pandemic kicked off, they reduced that demand down to 2.5%. Because they're extremely um, reasonable and understand what a pandemic and economic crisis are like. I just want to make mm. that clear, how much better they are at, like, basic economic logic and thought than our fucking government. That's fine. Please mm. go on. Excellent precursor. 
Chekhov's pay rise. So, so far, the MUA has, they've done a few actions here and there. So they did a four-hour strike at the Port of Botany in Sydney. Uh, and they've all, they also have a ban on overtime going. So in other words, the docks are still functioning at a slightly sure. slower rate, but it's not some kind of industry-wide total stoppage of work or anything yep. like that. And all of this is, you know, totally legal and protected action as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll get into what that means in a sec. But so then the MUA told Patrick that they were planning to have a 24-hour strike at Brisbane at ports in Brisbane and Sydney. Mm-hmm. And then Patrick immediately went to the Fair Work Commission, which who basically get to decide whether industrial action is legal or not. Yeah. And Patrick went to them saying, "We want to have all of this industrial industrial action stopped as soon as possible." And Look, like I said, I, I'd love to do a deeper dive at some point into the state of industrial relations here and the history, yep. how it all came about. We can get Elizabeth back on. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and give a couple of cliff notes here to kind of uh, give a bit of context. So, you know, if you don't already know this, what's important to understand about industrial action, um, you know, of which striking is a form in Australia, is that you can only legally take what is called protected action if A, you don't have a currently existing industry ag- agreement, like an mm-hmm. enterprise enterprise bargaining agreement, and B, your action has to get approved by the Fair Work Commission. So you can only strike under extremely specific circumstances in order to try and get particular conditions in a new EBA, and even then, only with express permission from a government body. Yep. Kind of undermines the purpose of a strike, but uh, sure. Maybe maybe, maybe just a little. Just um, a little. So the Fair Work Commission was established by Kevin Rudd when uh, he got elected in 2009. And, so, and, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. These restrictions on industrial action were introduced under the Fair Work Act, which, in, uh, which established the Fair Work Commission. So these right. restrictions on industrial action were introduced by Labor at that stage. Mm. I am fairly certain I'm right about that. Um, and, like, I mean, part of the longer, broader history about this is the Labor Party's history of undermining workers' abilities to organize. Um, and, again, you know, one day we'll talk about the Accords yeah. and you'll see how completely the Labor Party has um, betrayed workers over the course of the last few yep. decades. But story for another day. So, okay, we're, we've uh, got this... We've set up the situation where the Maritime Union has done a couple of very mild industrial actions. They're asking for a pay rise and uh, some other uh, changes to their working agreement. Um, And then Patrick immediately went to the Fair Work Commission. So then what happened was that we basically got a demonstration of just of how smoothly and effectively the Australian right wing operates. You know, a demonstration of how completely they have set up the system to Mm. work in their favor. So first, Patrick starts to talk to the media about how awful the economic damage of these extremely mild industrial actions are. They talk about massively reduced capacity at the ports. They talk about urgent medical supplies Uh. being held up which is a classic one that uh, stevedore companies love to trot out whenever there's uh, uh, industrial action by wharfies. The big claim they make is that there are 40 ships waiting to be unloaded and they just, and they can't because the docks don't have the capacity because of these, that one time that they struck, striked for four hours uh, and these are, and they're not doing overtime. There's all these ships waiting out there. And then those claims get circulated by the yeah. media. And then the next step is for the government to get involved. 
Health Minister Greg Hunt said mm-hmm. medicines which are vital for the health of Australians are being delayed. There's no question about that. And that could pose very shortly a real risk to Australians. Then Christian Porter, the Attorney General, steps in. For a union to be attempting to hold the national economy to ransom to leverage its push for a 6% annual pay rise is simply unforgivable, especially at a time when we in the, are in the grip of a global health and economic crisis. Now, I know I just mentioned that before about the 2.5%, but I'm pretty sure you said it was 6% over four years, uh, and then 2.5% over four years, not each year. Is that right? Or is it 6% annual or 2.5% annually? Yeah, initially it was 6% each year, and now, then they're asking, then they lowered it to 2.5% each year. Okay, it is annual. So, yes. Okay, that's what, yeah. Yes. And then finally, the Prime Minister himself jumps in quote, We cannot have the militant end of the union movement effectively engaging in a campaign of extortion against the Australian people in the middle Ugh. of a COVID 19 recession. This is just extraordinary, appalling behavior. That is just straight out extortion. And he went on to say, I kind of Australians who need what's on those ships being held up on those ships. There are 40 of them out there. You can go down to Port Botany or Cornell and you can see them lining up and every single one of them lining up is being held back from Australians getting what they need in the middle of a recession. And that was it. You know, the, like the, you get an extremely small, limited legal amount of industrial action from the maritime union. And then, the machinery of the right wing kicks into gear and the next thing you know, the fucking prime minister is calling out the union in the national media and the public relations battle is basically over by that stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, It didn't matter that there was never any risk of a medication shortage. Medical supplies usually have three to six months worth of stock on hand Anyway, but yeah. beyond that, the union offered, as they always do in situations mm-hmm. like this, to prioritize and unload any necessary supplies. But Patrick couldn't identify a single container which had which, containing which medical supplies. Which actually had medical supplies. So, it, right. again, straight out line. Bullshit. Then, yeah, obviously, as you've covered, Porter's uh, claim about the 6% pay rise is bullshit. It sounds much less, you know, ridiculous. It sounds much less unreasonable if you use the actual 2.5 number, which they're at yeah. now. Yeah. And Not that a 6% is unreasonable, to be clear, no. but, like, from the point of because view of a conservative, 2.5% still not that much. Any pay rise that doesn't amount to 100% of the profits from a company is yeah. not an unreasonable demand. Yeah. Because yeah. all profits are fucking stolen wages anyway. Okay. Uh-huh. But um, let's not get lost in the, weed, the, the communist weeds here. Um, so Scott Morrison's claim... Uh, about the 40 ships is probably the funniest one. Mm. There was just in no way 40 ships lined up waiting to get unloaded and definitely not 40 that you could go down to a port and see. I love the idea that he's just like hanging out at the the Prime Minister's house at Yarralumla? I can never remember how to say that. And then just like looks at... That's the one, yeah. Is Yarralumla... Fuck, I can't say that word. I think that's the Governor General's house. Yeah, yeah, Kirribilli. (laughs) Just like looking out over the harbour and there's just like... 40 ships, like, his fucking, bumper to bumper, like, leaning on the glass. horn. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, um, hey, I got geez, medical supplies in here. Come on. <laughs> exactly. But I also <laughs> love the idea that, like, people who are working, getting more money is bad for the economy. Like, we like, know that, like, yeah. Oh, these Australians won't get their budget or whatever. And it's like, you know the Australians who are unloading the ships who are members of the union who need more money to like pay 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 their rent and shit right like it's just such a such a bullshit 
like yeah, divide it, and it, conquer. Economically, it makes no sense either. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So the, the other headline going around about this one um, uh, was this one from the Guardian. Um, the headline was Morrison not ruling out sending in military to settle Patrick Terminal's wharf strike while urging lawful resolution. Uh, I think this headline was a little bit overblown. Oh, I mean, that's he was. Good. Uh, he was he was asked whether by a journalist whether he would send in troops to break up the strike, uh, with the reference being to the time that Labor Prime Minister Ben Chifley did that in 1949 with a coal miners' strike. So uh-huh. it's like a pretty, you know, it's an old ex- like. Will it's you not do like what we this, did this a couple this of years ago. This guy did 70 that... years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, um, you know, and Morrison responded, uh, "We're still at a stage where I think that sort of thing would hopefully be unnecessary, and that it would never come to something like that." So yeah, the question is sort of <laughs> it's kind of a funny beat up. You're right. This is a this is a bit of a it's silly a little headline because I, like I a, saw this. This was the main thing that I heard about the the story yeah. was yeah. So that was the top line going around for a few days, and, and like yeah, the question is pretty ridiculous, I think, and basically designed to produce that exact headline. Sure. But also the fact that Scott Morrison didn't just say no to that question is fucking cooked and tells yeah. you exactly, uh, it tells you precisely what you need to know about the way that this government, but also, you know, Australian society more broadly views industrial action. Um, you know, to get away with not saying no mm. is just, it, it is fucking wild. I mean, you know, what, like if you change the hypothetical for it to be, okay, say nurses are on strike or something. And then right, right. Would, a journalist would you send even... in the Arby to like, yeah, yeah, seriously. Like, come on. What the fuck? Or like uh, fucking that... Rafu or whatever. Like, are the army going to storm every McDonald's franchise <laughs> in Melbourne and make these people flip those burgers or like, um, and the answer to that question would either, well, firstly, we can get asked, yes. but also if that was, if it was asked, Morris would be like, that is a, flagrantly uh, no. fucking ridiculous question <laughs> yeah. to ask me why would you do it um but it's except it's not right you can picture him doing it could easily happen um, <laughs> yeah uh, it's just that the like he he knew that it would never have to happen because the power of the union is nowhere near where it was uh, where it has been in previous decades uh, so that kind of brings me to the next thing I wanted to touch on, which was uh, at the same press conference, Morrison was asked a similar question, not about whether he would send in the troops, but whether he would send in scab labor, which would make it, uh, you know, in, uh, in a repeat of something that happened on the waterfront in 1998, which is a massive industrial relations dispute, which also involved Patrick. So this is, you know, there's a direct historical through line here between these two incidents. So um, I, I just wanted to give... Uh, a little bit of background on this particular incident because it's very interesting um, and I think it provides a very important kind of uh, historical counterpoint to what's happening now and the kind mm-hmm. of the national response to this industrial action from the Maritime Union. So uh, this 98 waterfront dispute with uh, between the Maritime Union and Patrick was the first big anti-union move of John Howard's prime ministership. So right. uh, cabinet papers, which were released uh, last year, I think, showed mm-hmm. that the Howard government had basically been planning a showdown with the MUA from the second that they got into power. Interesting. Um, uh, we know that, you know, industrial relations reform was a big ticket item for Howard. And he uh, introduced the Workplace Relations Act when he was elected. That later became Work Choices. 
um, which was then, uh, you know, which was a huge campaign and uh, one of the kind of biggest uh, national campaigns that the union movement has run here was uh, against the work choices yeah. um, legislation, which basically removed from memory the like knee, like uh, unfair dismissal laws for small employers, basically. Right. making it much easier to fire people just because you felt it, like it. It also made it much harder to recruit people to the union. Uh, like, I think a lot of the choice and work choices was, like, the choice to not join the union or whatever. Uh, yeah. And so that was, like, refl- I, I mainly know about this through uni fees, that it, it stopped being legal to charge compulsory student union fees at unions. Exactly. But I think the yeah. same thing happened in other co- sectors as well. But anyway, yeah, yeah. as you say, so that, yeah, story it massively- for it was aimed at massively undermining union power. That was the entire point of it. Then it was later repealed by Kevin Rudd and replaced with the Fair Work Act, which I've already mentioned, which yep. established the very cool Fair Work Commission. Um, but basically, you know, the story is this. Woffies are a very union-dense profession. Uh, historically, they've had a lot of power, as we said. And Patrick was just sick of dealing with a highly unionized workforce who could actually ask and demand things that they wanted. So they did some extremely dodgy corporate restructuring restructuring, and basically split up among a bunch of different companies the jobs of hiring people and dealing with employees and then owning the stevedoring business. I see, right? I see. And then after setting up those corporations, they dismissed their entire workforce in order to bring in non-union labor. Um, which is just, yeah, the level of fuckery is pretty uh, wild. Uh, And there were some pretty sensational kind of images that are remembered from this time, like uh, cops were sent in with dogs to chase union workers off the docks. They smashed up protest camps, made mass arrests. There were uh, scabs, uh, non-union labor, being brought in wearing fucking balaclavas onto the docks. Like, yeah, very, like, intense scenes. Um, and there's one particularly hilarious detail from this uh, story, which uh, I, I just think is so funny, which is uh, this Dubai plan, which was uh, a plan that was come up with between Patrick and the and uh, people from the Howard government. And the plan was to get ADF veterans, Australian Defence Force veterans, get them sent to Dubai on tourist visas, train them as stevedores to get like an international stevedore qualification and then bring them back as scab labor so that they could be like hired internationally not as an australian stevedore oh no i mean i think it was just like to have a replacement workforce right right, Um, because they literally fired their entire workforce sure sure makes Uh, sense yep yep um but the existence of this plan got leaked to the maritime union and the media and so it just basically fell apart uh hilariously on the national stage Great. and dubai like revoked the tourist visas because they were like afraid of in- of international industrial uh wow. action yeah massive fuck up hilarious anyway eventually the high court ruled that the corporate restructuring that patrick had done was illegal cool. and ultimately the union pretty much won that fight but they did have to make some pretty significant compromises. So the permanent workforce was almost halved. Um, there were some job losses, but also a lot of casualization. Yeah, sure. And that, yeah. So, And there you see the through line of what corporations try to do to their workers and the connection to what's happening now with the MUA and Patrick. So casualization is always a goal of private companies at, the, you know, yep. at, at this stage. Patrick wanted it in 1998, and that's what they want now. Full-time organized workers 
are a financial liability to companies. Mm. That's just the long and short of it to these people. So where are we now? So after the, the, the massive beat up in the press and getting repeatedly smeared by literally the most powerful politicians in the fucking country, the Maritime Union and Patrick went to the Fair Work Commission and did a two-day conciliation meeting. The MUA put a peace deal on the table. They proposed just an extension of the current workplace agreement for another year mm-hmm. with the uh, lower 2.5% pay rise. And Patrick just flat out rejected the offer and instead said that the workers are going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to choose between either a lower pay rise, as in lower than the ones being offered like as an industry standard. Across, yep. Like, yep. So not even just lower than what you're asking for, but, but lower, like, than, lower than what you would get if you had the same you, job somewhere exactly. else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so either you get that lower pay rise or we get to change the workplace agreement that would make it way easier for us to casualize the workforce. And so this is what Patrick offered back to the Maritime Union of Australia, who have obviously been like, well, we don't want either of those things. And that's not a compromise. <laughs> um, that's just you saying you this want to fuck us in hardball. one of two ways. Yeah. 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 So there's going to be more hearings at the Fair Work Commission, uh, specifically into Patrick's attempts to stop the initial industrial action because uh, the MUA says that their uh, actions were totally legal and protected. Patrick says that they... I think Patrick is saying that they weren't. Uh, And so the MUA has said that they're not going to strike until those hearings happen, which Mm -hmm. are due to happen at the end of the month. Um, And so this story is definitely not over at this stage. And I have a quote here from uh, an ABC article which interviewed Patrick's chief executive who said that, quote, he was pleased the union had decided to pause industrial action as it would hopefully avoid shortages of goods at Christmas time. Having lost in the court of public opinion, they decided to retreat to fight another day. I mean, That's a kind of fucked way of describing that a bunch of politicians weighed in to, like, smear them. I mean, yep. like, technically it's true that they lost in the court of public opinion, but, like, that, like that's a weird way to describe a proactive spear campaign from a supposedly neutral governing body. Seriously. And, I mean, yeah, I think it shows how completely the right and capital in general have just com- have rigged the game in their favor. I mean, at the absolute slightest sign of resistance from a union, they can call in the support of the fucking prime minister yeah, and be yeah. guaranteed that he's going to have the back of private companies and will fuck over workers any chance he gets. Aside from the very grubby reference to Christmas, like, oh, yeah. they're delaying Christmas presents. Uh, like, unions the- hate Christmas. Oh, shut yeah. the fuck up, you loser. Anyway, so... You know, there. Uh, I have a whole bunch of other stuff here that, uh, you know, I, I wanted to kind of get into as a bit of a discussion, but we're running massively over time. So maybe I'll keep it in my pocket to talk about uh, when we do our deeper dive into labor organizing here in Australia. But suffice it to say that I think that the example of the 98 waterfront dispute and this one just shows how massively different the landscape is for Mm. union organizing in Australia and how it's changed over even just the last 20 years. Now, there's obviously things moving in that same direction of casualization and government legislation undermining the rights of Mm. workers to organize collectively. But like 
this was a very, very mild action that the MUA tried to do, and they got immediately shut down by the most powerful people in the country and basically didn't get any kind of public support for their industrial action, which was very different to 20 years ago when the public was basically completely on their side. And that's partially to do with, as I said, these sensational images of cops going in and smashing up workers' sure, camps, arresting yeah, yeah, people, yeah. sending in dogs. And scabbly for literally coming, sneaking onto the docks in fucking balaclavas and shit. Yeah. But, you know, they were able to get, like, that was the, you know, that was a huge national story. And this was, you know, this was a blip, basically. This caused the government no consternation at all. They were just like, oh, you, you want to take industrial action? No, actually, fuck you. Like, mm. you get nothing. And that, and Patrick has gone back to them basically being like, you know, thanks to what you've done, we're going to, we're going to undermine your rights and lower your pay even more. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's super fucked that like attempting industrial action gets them a worse deal than not. And like, that's the dream really for the conservatives is that yeah. like, it's a warning that exactly. trying to improve your lot will result in you being punished. Yeah, well, it's this kind of, like, they've got things so perfectly arranged in their favor that they can go to this, like, nuclear option of mobilizing yeah. basically the entire media and government against an industrial action, but it costs them nothing. And yep. it takes, like, a day or two to mobilize. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty it, it's pretty shocking stuff to look at it from that perspective. It's like... I don't know, to realize how effectively that capital has consolidated power over the past two decades, uh, when you see it in mm. this kind of stark comparison of these two examples, uh, yeah, it, it is pretty sort of eye-watering <laughs> to me. Anyway, on, on a later date, we'll get into a broader discussion about these things, but uh, I hope that that story made some degree of sense and wasn't too meandering. Yeah, no, uh, I think it was good. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't know about either of those actions, really. So, yeah, it's uh, good to know what happened before and what's happening now. Um, and I think that brings us to the end of our show. Normally, we would do a bit here about, like, you know, go over to patreon.com forward slash Snackpod and sign up for a dollar a month and you get a bonus episode. But we do it all out at the top of the show. So, I think yeah, we you know, just... you know what the deal is. If you want to support us, leave us a review where you can. Like, subscribe, Oh, yeah, please share. do that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, we would love that. We, it's been a while since we've got a, a, a review, so that that would be lovely. If, if you feel up to it, listener, you specifically. But now, why don't, we get, why don't we get to our uh, new end of the show segment? Now it's time for a birthday. What's been going on with Dante? Look, honestly, not a whole lot, you know, life, life ticks by. Um, one thing we've been working on is him getting better at being near trucks and buses. Hmm, um, cool. Like, under, it, I think that being terrified of trucks and buses is an extremely rational position for a dog to yes. take. Yes. That's an enormous, scary, noisy thing that comes way too close to me. Um, I want to bark at it to make it go away. Sensible. On the other hand, it's an extremely large hassle for me to have my arm pulled out of my fucking socket every time that a bus or a truck goes by. Yep. So we've been slowly training Dante and he's been getting really good. And, you know, there's this kind of like theory in dog training of the threshold, right? Yeah, I was going to mention threshold in, uh, in my story as well. So, yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, go yeah, yeah. So the idea of it, like, you know, you, you, your, your dog can take uh, so much stimulation and excitement up to a certain point 
and they can kind of like moderate their behavior and remain in control up until that level. But then, you know, so maybe one truck is okay. A truck and a bus. Okay. That's a little bit tough, but we're doing it. Uh, Two trucks and a bus like, oh boy, I'm getting shaky. And then like just add in an extra bus and suddenly Dante's losing his shit, barking at everything and takes minutes and minutes to come back under control. But his threshold is getting higher and higher. And now it's getting to the point where like he might sort of reflexively jump at a bus and then I'll be like, no, no, it's okay. Here's a treat. And he'll sit down and won't bark and be like, okay. So it's like, you know, we've, we've removed the barking. That's awesome. Yeah. Soon we'll remove the jumping. You know, it's a long process, but he's making progress and I'm very proud of him. That's lovely. That's really nice. Yeah. Uh, trucks and buses were a real problem for Bagel early on when I got him. And then I hired a trainer. It was the first one I hired, and she was actually almost completely fucking useless. But we walked past this enormous truck uh, that was parked. It was just parked by the side of the road. And Bagel was, like, doing that thing where they're like, I am not moving towards this. That is just, mm. like, put on the handbrake and is not moving. Yeah. And she, she, like, got a bit of a treat and put it on top of the tire. And it was a big truck, so it was, like, one of those huge tires. And he was like wait a minute, food, and went over and ate it off the tire. Now, like, that was, like, four years ago when I first, like, that was in the first month or two that I got him. Now, if we walk past a parked truck with one of those big, intense tires, he will be like, maybe there's a snack there for me? Uh, which is adorable. Is such a good idea. I'm going to try that. Yeah, give it a go. Um, but what I was going to say is that Bagel's been a real good boy this week. Um, I have mentioned before I give him drugs that are prescribed by a vet. Uh, that calm him down before a walk. And sometimes I don't bother doing that, just like, I don't know, if I need to go at the particular time and I can't wait for the drugs to kick in, or whatever, there's a variety, I'm lazy or whatever. Um, So the other day we went for a walk with no drugs, and he was so good, and we saw heaps of dogs, actually. It was was quite intense how many dogs we ran into, Mm. and like at quite short distance, turned around corner, there's a dog a a few meters away quite a few ones and he stayed under threshold the entire time and like nice work. when he's when he's heavily drugged and he does that it's great but when he's not on drugs and he did that that is like wow that's the goal of like all of the training that i'm doing is that he is not completely fucking terrified when we see a dog so <laughs> that that that's really nice um boys making progress this week yeah both of boys them. doing yeah. good couple of good boys yeah Speaking That's of a couple right. of good boys, thanks for hanging out with us. And thank you for hanging out with me, Noon. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, thanks. It was a this pleasure. It was fun. I, I enjoyed yeah. it every week. And I hope you um, do too, listeners. Yeah. And now, before we sign off, as Noon promised, we have another potluck. This one is an extra long, deep dive meme potluck from yes. listener Shannon, who uh, has also been helping us out behind the scenes and who we appreciate very much. Yeah, and they, uh, I'm pretty sure they explained the relevant meme, but uh, a certain shit poster, let's call him C. Richie. No, that's too obvious. Let's call him Chris R. Uh, shared this post into Ospol shit posting that has, uh, you know, some makeup and a, a hammer and sickle, and it says, I don't think girls know how cheap makeup is going to be once we nationalize Sephora. So, uh, with that, take it away, Shannon, for the end of the show. Keep on stanking in the pre world? Lights out. <laughs> nationalize Sephora. <laughs> so there's a post on the Facebook and <laughs> there's a post on the Facebook and the Ospol shitposting group and it says I don't think girls know how cheap makeup will be when we nationalize Sephora. In every group I've seen this in, the comment section has been just a mess. But it's a mess with a trend that I know a lot about, so here I am. 
I could say that it's condescending, gender essentialist, misogynistic, and I'd be correct. But that's boring. And I thought it would be more interesting to engage with the post for a bit and talk about leftist spaces and makeup. So let's look at the premise. I don't think girls know how cheap makeup will be when we nationalize Sephora. <sighs> let's ignore the price comment. I don't want to go down that road. There's a hammer and sickle here. Um, this one tells me that this is a semi-erotic attempt to win over people who love makeup over to communism. Niche, but I'll take it. Looking at the responses here, there are very few people actually engaging with it. So instead, what we have is the usual. Anytime makeup gets brought up in leftist spaces or otherwise, there's this predictable response. It's like if you got in a time machine to 2009 and started talking about Twilight, a predictable response. Um, but here, it's everything from talking about beauty standards to bad business practices to toxicity of products. Remember, we're talking about winning over makeup makeup users um, to communism here. Um, well, I see, what I see all the time is this general dismissal for makeup that has just a little bit of misogyny to it, as in, oh, makeup is a women's thing and therefore not worth taking seriously, or only worth discussing when we can tear it apart. But there's also, it's also worth mentioning that there's this like queerphobic angle, as makeup is an easy way to express your gender, whether that's fitting in or standing out. I'm not saying makeup is sacred, and I'm not saying we shouldn't discuss how much makeup sucks in some ways. For instance, women are expected to just wake up one day and be able to apply it like a pro. My cat wants to play with me. I'm sorry, I'm, buddy. I'm having a rant. Let me rant. Uh, so women are expected to wear makeup at work to be taken seriously. Like, that's fucked. That's a valid point. But we're talking about that post. Let's say it's encouraging makeup wearers to join the revolution, <laughs> but it's just doing an impossibly bad job at it. I've seen leftists say or imply that makeup wouldn't exist in a world where women aren't expected to look a certain way. And I completely disagree. For one thing, that's patronising as fuck to say that women only like makeup because they're expected to, as though there's no agency or genuine enjoyment involved, or that no one would be interested in using products to change the way their face looks. For another thing, beauty standards existed well before makeup, and being expected to not wear makeup is just another beauty standard. There's also things like culture and aesthetics, and if I listed everything, I'd be here all day. What I'm trying to say is that if we were talking about any other huge industry, like the movies or video games or painting? <laughs> painting? Is that an industry? Would people actually engage with the point of the post instead of talking about how they hate some aspect of it? Um, makeup at its core is a tool and can be used however you want. Better than that, at its best, makeup is the most accessible form of sci-fi body hacking. Yeah, I really believe this, that you can do in real life. If you define using technology in the form of product here to change your body to make it look or work the way you want it to, makeup is totally some cyberpunk shit. Wish you had different shaped eyebrows, want to conceal your partying from your boss? You can choose the face you put forward. The cyberpunk future is now, um, but nobody is connecting the dots. Nobody cares because it's cheap, it's easy, it's everywhere, and most of all, it's gendered. I am not a crackpot. <laughs> so while it's worth mentioning that while the makeup industry has a fair way to go, I would say actually that it's doing a lot better than most of the industries I can think of that stereotypically target men. Makeup consumers have been demanding more ethical products for a decade now, and holy shit, they're making progress. 
If you want natural, local, small business, black-owned, ethically made products on your face, you can absolutely do that. Indie brands have been taking an increasingly large share of Sephora's revenue and it's predicted to only increase over the years. So I guess the people don't want to nationalise Sephora? We want to get rid of it. The people in charge of stocking new makeup products or new makeup brands now? They are looking at a brand's ethical credentials before making any decision. They want to know if the products are vegan, do the foundations cater to everyone? These are the types of questions that are being asked now. I mean, is it a cynical move on their part to ask these questions? Totally. But there are so few industries like this. And it's 100% because the people who buy makeup are actively checking and asking these questions. Makeup customers are incredibly switched on and it's so disappointing to see comments that suggest otherwise. I'm not trying to say that the industry is perfect or even good. Insert addendum about capitalism and greenwashing here. Let's not get carried away. And I'm not saying don't critique makeup as a whole. I'm saying it's completely possible to critique with an intersectional view and some compassion and sci-fi shit also. (laughs) So many commenters will talk about people who wear makeup like they're shallow or mindless consumerists. Uh, when really big makeup businesses have to keep ethics at the forefront now. So I guess to answer the OP's post about the cost of makeup if we nationalise Sephora, um, I think the average makeup wearer knows. So an irrelevant comments thread is totally stereotypical when anyone mentions makeup. I guess when you cross a lack of understanding with the usual suspects of capitalism, queerphobia, misogyny, you just get really unproductive conversations. So that's my rant. Stay safe. Wear sunscreen. Love you. Bye.